Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. My guest today is Krista Sa. She's a feminist, artist, Hollywood screenwriter, and creator of The Pussy Hat Project. She's based in Los Angeles and is the author of the upcoming book, DIY Rules for a WTF World. Due out in early 2018, she wants to make the world a safer place for women and to help everyone validate their own creativity, femininity, and intuition. Welcome, Krista. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Lisa. I'm so excited. This is really, really exciting. I have been following you since the Pussy Hat Project came out, and our team had been trying to track you down for the last year, practically. Krista Saw's Pussy Hat Project made global headlines. It was launched in November 2016 to provide um, the Women's March on Washington a means to make a unique collective visual statement by that sea of pink hats. And it really, it went, it was a viral phenomenon. It was a global phenomenon. Krista, talk a little about the inspiration for that and what it took to make that happen, make that shift happen. Thanks for asking the question. Um, I, um, the inspiration came from it from like a very emotional, deep need, um, of mine to, um, make some sort of difference. You know, I, like if you really place yourself back um, on that election day, um, like uh, my friends and myself, we were all just devastated, you know, and that sounds like such a um, hyperbolic word now. But like when I really put myself in that week, it really did capture um, how we felt like, uh, you know, my, uh, you know, therapists across the land were um, saying that they we're receiving a high volume of calls. Like, you know, on my end, my therapist actually canceled on me. She was so distraught by the election. So, <laughs> oh my so God. that was the week, you know? Um, and, but th- during that same week, um, news of the women's March came up and we're starting to come together. Uh, Teresa shook in Hawaii had this idea for the women's March and, um, other organizers were jumping in. Um, so I, as soon as I heard of that idea, I just knew I would be there. Um, and, um, but I was hoping that I could figure out something, um, to do like beyond showing up. And I'm based in Los Angeles and a lot of the planning was happening in, you know, DC and New York. Um, so I was trying to figure out what I could do from where I was and with my skills and so on. And I'm a screenwriter. Um, I'm, you know, I've produced things, uh, so, I had that sort of writing and planning uh, stuff, but you know, like I, I was just trying to figure out what I could do for the women's March beyond show up. And at first I was thinking just on my own self, like visually, what could I do? Because one photograph can just like take the world over by storm. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and honestly, Lisa, I couldn't think of anything. I was like, well, like, you know, I, I mean, honestly, I was really grasping at straws. Like I could march naked, you know, but like, what's the meaning behind that? Right. I wanted it to have a really, um, clear, impactful meaning. Um, and that's actually what kind of got me, um, into, uh, onto the right idea because, you know, I was thinking to myself, gosh, Krista, like, you know, you're an LA girl, you don't even check the weather and, um, (laughs) you know, you might like, uh, you might get naked in LA in January. Like, I don't know if you really would get naked in DC in January. Right. And that's when it got me thinking, okay, I have to actually rethink my wardrobe for this. I have to have like a winter coat and actually like button it up all the way. It's not just like an accessory, fashion accessory I would wear in LA, right? So I have to button up all the way and actually like seal in the cracks of like with like gloves and a scarf and wear a hat, right? Um, and because I had been really obsessed with knitting at the t- at the time, you know, like uh, um, we were like, you know, my website has like different projects on it that I'm doing, but you could call these projects obsessions really. And I was just really obsessed with knitting at the time. And, um, because that was on my mind, it just came to me that, you know, I could knit my own hat and, you know, that has like, that feels really meaningful. It's like, um, you know, to make my own protest gear and kind of like called to my mind, like, you know, Betsy Ross making the American flag for the American people, you know, like she handmade that. So, um, I was really like, you know, I felt there was something there, but the next step to it all was that, um, it sounds like an infomercial, but it was like, you know, I'm a beginner knitter. Right. So it's like, if I could do it, anyone can. And that's when it really hit me. Like I could see it like one hat on my head to like with like in a snap, like a sea of pink, like all of us wearing these hats and so many people making them. Cause I knew if we could just share the pattern, like, um, I had been sort of involved in the crafting community and learning that, you know, the idea that like people share and sell patterns um, of like how it's like these bits of cultural knowledge, right? It's like sharing recipes of like how you actually made this thing so other people can make it too. And there's a long history of doing that in the crafting community. So I was like, you know, if we share this pattern for free, then so many people can make these hats and send them in. Um, And, you know, we could basically outfit our entire March and really show a collective unified statement. And on top of that, people at home could feel really uh, connected because <clears throat> being out in LA and at the time there weren't as many sister marches um, form, um, formed yet. So um, the a common thread I heard were, were, were people saying that like, oh, I really like, I believe so strongly in what the Women's March stands for but I can't go, like, I can't physically go, like, you know, and especially the yarn store, I I heard this a lot, the little knittery, so um, it just, it just really uh, took on really quickly once that happened, Um, and um, yeah, and I think we, you know, the first, we had a, we had a decision early on of, like, you know, we call uh, we call people knitters and marchers, right, the two groups we're trying to uh, reach, and obviously you could be a knitter and a marcher, but um, we realized that starting out, we really needed to reach out to the knitters first, you know, like, <clears throat> you know, like Nordstrom sells everything, but they started off with shoes, right? And Amazon sells everything, but they started off with books. And we wanted to be specifically reach out to the knitters because they understood immediately what the project was about. Um and without the knitters, there would be no hats. So, like, you know, we right. had to reach the crafters first. And then the marchers could kind of catch on and understand, like, you know, like their role in it, which is to wear the hat and represent the people back home and be a part of this collective unified statement. So, anyway, that was – that's kind of, like, the progression of um, the project. Um, oh, and I should add, like, I guess a critical part of it, too, um, is that – um, between getting the idea and sending it out to people, it was like six days of this really intense work um, with my friends and volunteers, and we put together this um, uh, this manifesto basically that had like the philosophy of the project, uh, the call to action, and the like the why and the how basically. Um, 
And it was all beautifully illustrated by my friend Aurora, who also illustrates my book. So um, it was a really beautiful product that came together. And I think um, it was important for me to do that too, so people could feel welcomed into the project and that they were in good hands if they gave us the time and um, of making the hat. Well, well, I think you share something so powerful in that the, the uh, pink hat became a form of protest gear. And it speaks to how we create change. That change um, comes from very, very different ways. It's unleashed when we allow the creative process to take hold. And from what I can see, this is the impetus for your book, this DIY rules for a WTF world. I mean, it is about unleashing your creativity and you're a project person, right? So this is all about your process and how you make things. Yes, it is. And I do think 90% of creativity is mental health, actually, because, you know, for these ideas to come through to you, through you, like, you know, as if you're a channel, um, and then out into the world, like if you could keep your channel, like as, um, clear of, of plaque, honestly, as possible. And I think that plaque that can build up that blocks inspiration and the implementation of a project are, are things that I call idea squelchers. So stuff like those thoughts, you know, of like, oh, that'll never work. Or like, oh, like you can't pull that off. Or, oh, that sounds stupid. Or people will laugh at that. Or it's too big of an idea. It's too small of an idea. It, it doesn't matter. Like whatever that whatever your personal idea sculpture is, you know, <laughs> it's blocking these uh, ideas from coming to you and it's blocking from it com- coming out of you and into the world. And um, so my book is a lot about how I figured out over the course of 10 years, honestly, like ways to like um, allow my creativity to um, flow and to have that confidence to to trust in it really we're going to need to dash off to a break and when we come back we'll carry on the conversation with krista saw who is a feminist artist hollywood screenwriter and creator of the pussy hat project she's got a book that's coming out diy rules for a wtf world how to speak up get creative and change the world which is on its way to the world in 2018 um before we head out to the break, I want to give you information about where to connect up with Krista Sa to learn more about her, her projects, and her new book. Go to KristaSa.com, and that's S-U-H, on Twitter at Krista Sa, and on Facebook, that page is Krista Sa as well. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take that break, I want to talk about creativity and how making things can make you a happier and healthier person. Today's sponsor, Craftsy, is the digital destination devoted entirely to makers. More than 13 million enthusiasts from artists to quilters and beyond make Craftsy their home for binge-worthy on-demand content and access to the world's top experts and curated supplies, all served up in a fun-loving creative community. This year, resolve to live a more creative life. Sign up for your seven-day free trial at craftsy.com slash happiness. Once again, it's seven days of free craftsy at craftsy.com slash happiness. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life 
is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about shift stirring and shift shaping with Krista Sa, who is a feminist artist, Hollywood screenwriter, and creator of the Pussy Hat Project. She's based in L.A. She's got a book that's coming out entitled DIY Rules for a WTF World, How to Speak Up, Get Creative, and Change the World, which is on its way to the bookshelves very soon. Krista, let's talk about the book. Because in it, you really get into the nitty-gritty with tools, tips, experiences, and rules, as well as knitting patterns. Talk a little bit about that. I love that, <laughs> that you've got the bee pattern in there. Thank you. Yeah, the book is so near and dear to my heart because, like, I, I wanted a way to reach people and basically, like, have a – like. The book is like, I hope, the experience of talking to me in person, you know, like the way I would talk to a best friend and um, have that conversation. And I like to think of myself as the bad influence friend in your life that just like, yeah, you should do it. Like whatever crazy idea you have, like, yes, like I believe in you. You should do it. And that's kind of the tone of the book, I think, um, and the purpose of the book, because I think women especially are so held back and um, taught to hold back on their great ideas. And I think we need um, more cheerleaders and permission slips and reminders that um, your ideas are great. I think, um, you know, I think, you know, in the wake of the Pussyhead Project, people were like, wow, like, how did Krista come up with this great idea? Oh, my God. And the thing is, like, I, that is like, to me, that's not anything. Um, it's lovely, but it's not actually rare. You know, I think people, we all, all of us have great ideas all the time. And if anything makes me unique, it's the fact that I didn't, um, like I, I decided to nurture the idea as it came instead of squelching the idea. And I think for, I, I was taught like so many people to squelch crazy ideas of like, no, 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 that's never going to work. Um, or like, you know, people will think X, Y, or Z of me if I even dare to, like, experiment with this idea. And as you can imagine, these thoughts, these idea sculptures really hold us back. So I wanted to write a book to teach um, women, especially everywhere, to nurture their own ideas. Like, you know, women are known as nurturers, and yet we don't nurture our own amazing ideas. You know, I think you make a very good point. You know, we, we shush ourselves. And there's nothing worse than somebody else shushing us, but we tend to shush ourselves. You know, like I, I think of thoughts, like in creativity, this is going to sound a little crass, but kind of like brain farting, right? Like mm -hmm. you have a you thought, I have a thought, it comes out. Sometimes it's a good one, sometimes it's not. But if you don't allow it, you know, if you don't sort of give it a voice, how will you know if it is the next great pussy hat project or something else? Exactly, exactly. I think, um, you know, I, I like to tell people that I don't need a six foot four inch white man to loom over me and tell me I'm stupid because I already have that voice inside my head. Right. Like so we have we're, we've become the self-policing group of uh, just stopping our ideas before it even happens. And that's actually one of the biggest victories of patriarchy. Right. I do think that voice inhibiting especially women from pursuing these great ideas um, or minorities or, you know, um, any oppressed group, like that, that is inhibiting our, us from making change in the world, like on that really personal battlefield, right? So if we can extract that voice from our heads that is are holding us back, um, you know, I think that's when we would have a really, really like an even bigger revolution than what we're, than what we're having right now. And when you speak of the battlefield and and the Pussy Hat Project itself, what you did really was um, have a call to arms, right? You used digital technology as part of the weaponry. And it was a call to arms for women and men. There were plenty of men out there wearing those hats. <laughs> That, yeah, I love seeing that. And yeah. then making the hats, too. Yep, yep. 
um, to um, start, it, I would say it's not a war, but a love fest. I mean, it actually did did what you set out to do, which was, you know, use our voice, challenge challenge what was happening, but also create a more unified um, country because you saw women wearing these hats at marches all around the country in small towns. It was phenomenal. You know, I think knitting is so comforting, like the act of knitting is comforting and then wearing a knit item is comforting, right? And I think that really feeds into the Pussy Hat Project because when you see such a, so like when when your allies are made so visible around you, um, yeah. that is hugely comforting, right? And when you have that, when you know that they, that you are a part of something bigger and so visible, like you can see it, you can see the sea of pink, you could see people around you wear the hat and day to day and on murals and everything, right? Um, you feel like you're not alone. And when you have that feeling, you are able to um, really add your voice in a way, um, you know, one part of my mission is to make the world a safer place for women. And I don't yeah. mean just physically like out on the street, although that's very important to me, but I mean also safety of self-expression, right? Where you can, you feel like you could say something and, um, and like to say that, uh, and you have the permission and you have the safety to say something more than once. I think so many women feel like, you know, they only have one shot, um, you know, especially in public to say it and get it right, because if they mess up, they're just out, you know, um, and that creates a sense of perfectionism. And, you know, and I don't think that's true safety of self-expression when you only have one shot, you know, men certainly yeah. have many shots. So I think um, I think, uh, yeah, that's uh, like I think the hat contributes to um, uh, creating uh, like a, a more safe environment to um, open up and um pursue your ideas and um, reach out and connect with people. Well, you talk about demolishing the patriarchy and um, this conversation is occurring at a very timely uh, space in the news because we just had the, um, the person of the year announced uh, and it is not a person. It is not a man, but it is a group of women who use their voices to challenge the status quo. The silence breakers, yeah. Yes, yes. And that's what I think this really speaks to. And, you know, we have a commander-in-chief that felt it was okay um, using one's fame to grab women by the pussy. Um, I think what, what what you're really doing is, is telling us it's okay and supporting us in um, America taking back that. Yes, Um I think it's so important. I think, um, you know, when we talk about demolishing the patriarchy, um, unfortunately, like, um, or for, uh, unfortunately, the patriarchy can be very, um, it doesn't feel very concrete sometimes. Like, if anything, um, you know, our commander in chief's um, actions are pretty concrete, you know, like they're pretty, they're just very obviously reprehensible. And that's why um, there's, um, I think there's some um, consensus and safety and grouping around that. But I think patriarchy as a whole is more like this haze around us. And, um, you know, it's like the first chapter of my book that I want to acknowledge that, you know, um, when when it's a haze that is your enemy, so to speak, it's really difficult because you can't touch the haze, right? And you can't even really see the haze. It's just obscuring your vision, um, and, you know, that's why, like, there's so many um, patriarchal offenses um, to us every day that um, that it takes a while to even acknowledge and see. And then it, it's a little bit harder to um, it's it's also hard to express to other people like why it's not OK. And it's because it's a haze, like a almost like goggles put over you and you don't even realize you're wearing them. Right. Yeah. So, um and so when that's the enemy, it's like, it really takes, um, I think, personal conversations um, that, um, you know, like, uh, like, like reading a book and like really understanding what's going on um, and um, just in the acreage of your mind, right, of like how you're seeing the world and trying to identify where, um, 
patriarchy is and then connecting with other people over it and just making it more visible. I do think, um, you know, the silence breakers, like it brings the truth to light um, via these stories. And I think like uh, the pussy hat um, brings the truth to light um, visually. Right. So we're all doing our part to um, make that happen. And I, I think from the very beginning, the pussy hat was based on the idea of like the more we are seen, the more we are heard. Um, And I think those two things just feed into each other more and more. So I'm hoping for this upward spiral of women everywhere gathering together. I'm optimistic. And I also think it's important to talk about the men. I don't think what you are suggesting for a minute or what I sense is that we're bashing men here. I mean, I'm the mother of a young man and I want him to see the model that when you see that things aren't right, you speak up and you and you and you speak your truth. And there are other people who speak their truth and that you don't need to degrade or suborn or minimize the other. Yes, I think um, I, I, I mean, there's so many men a part of the movement and um, and also, you know, people who don't um, identify with the gender. Right. Right. Um, so, um, you know, when I say women, I actually, you know, it's, it's shorthand and maybe it's lazy, but I actually am talking about a large idea of, um, probably what I mean more is femininity. Um, because I think we all have femininity in us, you know, women, men, gender, queer, and it's femininity that's being really, um, attacked, I think, you know, like, um, like for example, like intuition and, um, feelings and making decisions on that is like considered really, um, stupid in the business world, you know? Um, and yet like what drives humans more than emotions and instincts and things like that. Right. But, um, so yeah, yeah. You know, you laugh, but it's like, you know, like we, we want these more masculine things of like numbers and all this stuff, but, um, which I, you know, not to, not to downgrade numbers, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, we need both. And right now femininity isn't being, the feminine is not being, um, valued. You know, like, I think even the slur, like pussy as a slur is, uh, applied toward men because they exhibit feminine, the feminine qualities, right. Or weakness. And I just, and I'm trying to reclaim that word as, um, a word of strength, a word of feminine intuition. And I think feminine intuition exists in your son, exists in me, it exists in all of us, you know, and we just need to value and respect that more rather than degrade it. Indeed. Well, I am excited to read your new book. Uh, I'm going to attempt to knit myself a hat. I've never knitted, but I'm, I'm inspired. I'm inspired by getting it. (laughs) Of course I can do it. Right. Like if I can give birth, I can knit a hat. Of course, yes. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Oh my God, can I tell you? Like sometimes people are like, "Oh, like why are you wearing like, like pussies on your head?" That's so. That's you know, that's that's so demeaning. I was like, "Well, your head came out of a pussy, so it's like you know, it's not." Yeah, like a... <laughs> exactly. And also, it is like a pussy hat, pussy cat thing. So you know, it works on so many levels. You know, like you don't have to. Um... Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Well, I think it goes, I think it goes to, and probably if we have sponsors, they're going to kill us on this episode, you know, like pussy power. It's like, you know, we're taking yeah. back, we're taking back the power using our voices. I, I believe in a, in a dignified way to, to make change happen, to make, to shift stir, to say that the status quo can no longer exist because it's not for the benefit of the greater good. And that's what this election has done. It has given birth to so many activists and I'm, pretty happy about that oh me too i do think that the pussy had and like all like any small way to get into the movement like that gateway drug whether it's like you know tweeting a me too story or whatever it's just like you know it's it's so empowering and i'm so glad more people are joining and i'm so glad you wrote this book i'm so glad that you put this in your project pile and made it happen the book we're talking about today is diy rules for a wtf world how to speak up get creative and change the world which is on its way to bookshelves the author is krista sa she is also the creator of the pussy hat project to learn more please visit her website krista sa and that's s u h .com on twitter you can connect with her at krista to Sa and on Facebook at Krista Sa as well. 
Krista, thank you so much. Will you come back and hang out again in a few months? I love this. Yes, yes, I would love that, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to all your listeners as well. It's been a real pleasure. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Today our focus is on emotional literacy. What does it mean to be emotionally intelligent? And to take this subject matter a little bit deeper, we're going to be exploring emotional justice and more with Dr. Janine Staples, who is an associate professor of literacy and language, African-American studies, women's gender and sexuality studies at Pennsylvania State University. She focuses on dismantling supremacist patriarchies through research, teaching, and coaching. As a sociocultural literacist, Dr. Staples works to understand personal and public voices and stories to solve personal and public problems. And I want to bring her on so we can learn more about exactly how she's doing this. She's also the author of The Revelations of Asher Towards Supreme Love in Self. Dr. Staples, welcome to the show. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for welcoming me here. I'm very pleased to be here. Oh, well, I'm, I'm really excited. You are a highly educated woman, and the, the, the knowledge base that you possess is quite vast. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about how you're using your education to really tap into an area where we all need to raise more awareness, which is about the love of self and how to do this in a healthy, constructive manner. Yeah. So if the question is, how am I using my training um, to do the work, um, it really has to do with the fact that uh, my training saved my life. I didn't realize that uh, for so many years, uh, we as women have been socialized into this idea that self-love will come through things like saying nice things to yourself or saying nice things about yourself or um, presenting oneself in a professional way or in a sexy way uh, or you know, making lots of money or having lots of friends or having a hot boyfriend or, a, you know, a happy marriage or, um, you know, a house full of babies. And I thought that self-love depended on those things. So being hyper-educated and going through the work of learning how to do research um, and to be a scholar um, of emotional literacy is what actually saved me from believing some of those falsehoods. When you wrote your book, The Revelations of Asher, Towards Supreme Love in Self, first, I think it's important to let us know who Asher is. So Asher is one of seven um, voices in the text. I call them fragmented selves. They're actually um, the most distilled and concentrated and specific voices of a a feminine woman's interior life. So Asher is the fragmented self. She's the energetic source who speaks um, through inquiry. She asks lots of questions. She's our investigator energy. She does research. Um, She's very thoughtful. She's based in ego. She's cognitive. Um, And so she is one of seven aspects or parts or pieces um, of a feminine whole. 
Uh, I named the book after Asher because she is the fragment itself that's doing the most work in the book in terms of telling the stories of women. So when we talk about the seven aspects of, of the feminine, what are the other six? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, that's such a great question. So many people ask about the lover identities and they don't ask about the fragmented selves. So just to differentiate between the two, I identified in my research seven fragmented selves. Those are basically voices in your interior life. And the five lover identities are your performances in your exterior life. So the six other fragments, um, I'll start from the top. There's one that I've named Raja, and she is um, a representation of a woman's spiritual center. So she, in the book, speaks of um, Judeo-Christian scriptures. She invokes Buddhist principles. She does prayer. She thinks about mindfulness. She um, anchors us to the divine. And she's the part of us um, as women um, that's very ethereal. And so then we have in the lineup Asher, who is next. She is the beginning of cognitive energy. She, as I said, is inquisitive. She's thoughtful. She does a lot of investigation. She does a lot of research. She's constantly asking, why, 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 why did this happen? When did this happen? Where did this happen? She's super logical. Uh, the next fragment itself after Asher is an energetic center that I call Maven. That's M-A-V-E-N. And Maven is the composition of our maternal energy. So she's the part of uh, womanhood that talks about history. Um, she does a lot of accusatory energy, like you should know better, you ought to know better, you should be doing this, you ought to be doing this. Um, she historicizes a lot. The next fragment itself, uh, I've named Nason. Um, Nason is the energetic source that is a real people pleaser. She's very, very um, consumed with external approval, affirmation. She's the really, really hard worker. She labors a lot. Um, she performs a lot of cheery, chipper energy. Um, she likes to have people think that she can handle everything. Um, the next fragment itself, um, closer to uh, the center of personhood, down deeper into sort of reproductive space, is um, a fragment that I call Kagan. I call Kagan the licking lips. So she is um, an aspect <laughs> Yeah, she's the aspect of womanhood that's very interested in sex. The temptress. <laughs> she is. She's sex and sensuality. She's really into material things, um, anything concretized, gift, time, money. Um, the next fragment itself um, underneath, Sash, is one I call Laish. Laish is a fragment itself um, that's whimpering. She's small. She's whispering. She's quiet. She's nervous, very fragile. She does not believe in her own inherent worth or value. Um, she's the aspect or fragmented self um, in womanhood that is a jittery, um, skittish energy. Um, she's super fragile. And then at the bottom of the spectrum, the, the, the aspect or the energy of womanhood that I call our anchor is rage. Um, and I call her Sash. And she's the gritty, profane, argumentative um, energy that bears resistance and objection, um, and she's a soldier. And so those are the seven. What's interesting to me is what uh, what emerges in my mind as you're explaining all of these are archetypes archetypes of, of womanhood. Right? Yeah, yeah. They're not very far off. And interestingly enough, I arrived at the conclusion of um, sort of uh, casting light on those fragmented cells based on my analysis of two years of ethnographic data that I collected with 10 women. And so it actually um, was a little bit of a relief for me to find those seven and note that throughout folklore, throughout history, um, throughout various social, cultural, and anthropological systems, these archetypical formations are recurrent, yeah. Well, and, and so often we hear about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and the and the, the, the monomyth, and it's it's specifically the heroic or hero's journey. So it focuses on male archetype. And what I love about your work is that you are um, dissecting these feminine energies, these feminine archetypes, and Asher being the one who is the, the cognitive, the thinker. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I chose to wrote the, write the book from Asher's perspective, 
uh, just because I felt like she would be the most satisfying in terms of her propensity to ask lots of questions, to delve really deep um, and to do a vast survey of experience. So in the book, what women will find is just a, a catalog of really rich, powerful, descriptive, sexy, fun, energetic, and sometimes sad, actually, and tragic stories about the lived experiences um, of women um, in current day. And when we talk about the uh, emotional inquiry and cognitive inquiry, which Asher's character is represents, how does that play into emotional, not just the the literacy aspect, which I which I do get, but the 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 justice aspect? Yeah. So one of the things that I realize is very important to me as a literacist and as an educational anthropologist is the justice justice project in my work, which means that I want my work to do work in the common good. And when I think about the plight of girls and women, particularly um, black and brown girls and women, um, and how we are marginalized in various ways in society, regardless of the amount of privilege we might have in terms of economics, um, but just socially, culturally, morally marginalized, a big part of our marginalization <clears throat> rests in the fact that the, um, the form and the function and the richness and the depth of our interior life just is not valued. We're, we're barely seen, we're not acknowledged, not very visible. So when I talk about emotional justice, I'm talking about um, really advocating for um, deep respect, deep acknowledgement, um, deep regard for the interior lives of people. One of the things that social justice does for us, Lisa, is it takes very seriously the um, exterior lives of people, the public lives of people. Our social justice projects are really, really vested in doing work in our legal system so that people have public rights, doing work in our academic system so that people have access to education, doing work in our political system so that you know we make sure that our public policies are fair and are just. And those social justice works are all geared towards creating um, a very rich and safe environment for our exteriority, for our public space, for our property even. Um, emotional justice is about really promoting that same regard for the interior lives of people. And that means when black girls and women and brown girls and women come to the forefront and, and offer stories about abuse, about violence, um, and give narrative accounts about lived experiences that have promoted microaggressions and macroaggressions. An emotional justice project would mean that those stories and the revelations of those interior lives would not be taken for granted or dismissed or disrespected or diminished, but that they would be welcomed um, and that we would become a student of interior life so that we can inform social justice work with emotional justice work. I love what you just described. I mean, I get it. I get it completely. You with what you just shared, it makes perfect sense. You know, and that that the emotional life has validity when it is externalized, when it is shared, when it is really part of the tapestry that is the human experience. I can. Yeah. I, I. I. I'm with you now. I was. I was curious. I'm like, okay. Well, what. What does this really mean? And and it. It is. It's part of a a, a large conversation. It's not just. Uh, women and girls of color. It's all of us and the importance of this in, in our lives to have rich, good, happy lives. It is. And the reason I, I forefront the experience of black and brown girls and women um, when I talk about women and girls in general is because if we actually want to make our project, our, our liberation project, very sophisticated, extremely advanced, and I mean, particularly powerful, we would do well to understand the ways that violence, abuse, um, injustices actually play out in the lives of black and brown girls and women, um, not to discount the experiences of white women, but to say that if we understand how intersectional um, spaces hold violence, we can understand a mastery of violence beyond what we can comprehend immediately at this moment. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the discussion with Dr. Janine Staples about emotional justice and her book, The Revelations of Asher Towards Supreme Love in Self. To learn more, please visit JanineStaples.com on Twitter at Janine Staples. And on Facebook, that page is Dr. Janine M. Staples. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? 
eight keys to unlocking a joyful life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are we happy yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about emotional justice and emotional literacy with Dr. Janine Staples. She is the author of The Revelations of Asher Towards Supreme Love in Self. She's also an associate professor of literacy and language, African-American studies, and women's gender and sexuality studies at Pennsylvania State University. So Janine, prior to the break, you really broke it down and defined for us what emotional justice is and how it is specifically relevant to women and girls of color. And then we're also having a sort of a, a larger picture of all this about how it uh, applies to all of us. But specifically in the book, The Revelations of Asher, you talk about the supreme lover identity. And then you also talk about terror in love and mm -hmm. trauma yes. and um, why women need to learn their fragmented selves. Yes. Yes. Well, one of the things I talk about in the book, um, sort of implicitly, I'm not explicit about this at all, really, because I really want women to get into the stories more than anything else and find themselves in the book so that we can illuminate the dark places in the soul um, and also in the soma. Uh, but what I advocate for is um, developing what I call an ear for your multivocality. That's developing an ear for the voices in your soul and in your soma. And those are the fragments itself. And, you know, Lisa, I say that it's important for women to learn their fragmented selves so that they can know the scope of their personhood. Um, yes. We, we, often, we often are really, really deeply socialized to do self-avoidance, to not tell ourselves the truths about ourselves, to not get to know how we process, how we retain information, like where we go to form narrative structures, how we communicate we really don't know ourselves in the deepest ways that we can. And that's one of the reasons so women, so many of us feel so deeply dissatisfied. It's just our lack of depth. So when I say get to know the fragmented parts of yourself, I'm really saying get to know the whole of you in pieces. There's a lot of peace in pieces. And that's what I advocate for. And how does one go about doing that? You know, we all lead very, very busy lives. And it seems as though that until we bump up, bump up against a crisis, we don't really even scratch the surface yeah. of personal inquiry. We don't, we're not willing to go deep, you know, because we disavow those parts of ourselves that we find distasteful or unattractive or not strong. Yeah, that's the big question. I get that in the Supreme Love Project all the time. It's the how, like, how do I go about doing this work? Typically, I would agree with you. I'd say that you're probably right in the most, in the majority period of time, most of the time, we do need a crisis. We need to come to the bottom of a well or get slammed up against a wall. Um, and that's a service that life produces through us in order to <laughs> get us to stop and pay attention. Um, it really is a gift. And, um, so the steps typically in general 
But one of the things I say to women is you need a coach. That's like just an aside. You, you really do need a coach to do this work. Um, but the first step really is to begin to practice telling the truth. Yes. It seems very simple. And yet there are so many ways that we, um, we lie to ourselves emotionally. That's probably one of the most emotionally unjust practices that we have is our capacity to lie, to do avoidance, um, or to just, you know, to pacify ourselves or to retell a really hard story, um, in a way that's palatable, but that doesn't give us the depth that we need. I can give you an example if you'd like. I would love an example. Okay. So each of the fragments itself in the book tell, she contributes her own stories. And so, um, you know, there, Laish contributes a story of child sexual abuse and molestation. Sash contributes a story of rape, which are some of the big T terrors. Those are the hard, harsh, physical, somatic terrors. Um, Maven and Asher tell little T terror stories. They tell stories about emotional neglect, um, infidelity, um, et cetera. And I can remember working with, it's just not that long ago, a woman who um, was really caught up in a narcissistic codependent relationship. She self-identified so much when reading the revelations with Asher and with Mason um, and with Maven, true to form, because they told some of the softer, not the softer, but some of the lighter terrors, the microaggressive terrors. And one of the things she did was she would say things um, like, you know, well, my relationship wasn't that bad. And, you know, I really, uh, you know, I, I didn't make that many mistakes or I didn't, I didn't do, you know, X, Y, Z. She, there was a lot of ways that we talked through some of the things that she did in the relationship as a, as a codependent holding on to, um, approval, really seeking out affirmation and her inability, Lisa, to just tell the truth, to be plain with herself, um, meant that she was not accessing sash, the rage in her interior mm. life to do any work in the world. She wasn't, she, she wouldn't allow herself to move to that place. She wouldn't access um, layish, the part of her that's the fragment itself that does timidity, that does insecurity, that does a fractured sensibility. It's very, very um, insecure. She was really, really performing her womanhood on the opposite end of doing, saying things that would make her feel really good, but that wouldn't get her to a truth. And so I asked her one day and I said, what do you think Sash would say about your behavior in that relationship as you functioned as a codependent? And she was quiet for a long time. And she said, well, Sash would say I was pathetic. <laughs> Sash would yeah. say I was a loser. And I say, well, how does that feel? And she says, well, it feels horrible. That's not true. And I said, but it is. It is. In that instance, you were pathetic and you were a loser. How does that feel? And it took her a while. But what I started to explain to her was that if we can be so bold as to tell our total truth, knowing that it's not the end truth, that it may not be the highest truth, that it's not a truth that we have to rest at, but that it's one that existed in a time or space. If we can tell that truth, our capacity for wisdom, for grace, for empathy, empathy for altruism, can grow exponentially in moments and don't have to take years. It's powerful. It's very powerful, but I, I, I want to um, challenge part of what you're, what you're sharing in, in a good way in that when we start telling um, truth that you're mm -hmm. describing, that sort of brutally honest, well, in that moment, you know what, my performance was less than, or I was not being my best and maybe I was a wimp or not standing up for myself. Um, it, we have to be careful not to limit the identity to that description, because I think what happens is part of going to that truth, we then also, the flip side is have the ability to take that on is who we are. And we're not that. We might've been that in that moment in time. There is a betrayal of self. I think that happens when we behave in these ways, but it's not the essence of who we are. Conversely, I understand what you're saying, that by understanding those aspects of self, that we then synthesize them together with all the other parts of ourselves to be whole. Unless we do the truth telling, we cannot do the healing. Yeah. It just won't, it just won't work. And so one of the things that I do is I tell women, get a coach. 
and that will support you in understanding a method and a practice for arriving at that truth, really facing that truth, and learning how to access the wisdom and the capacity for love and for radical <laughs> inclusivity and acceptance that you will need to bless and accept that truth and heal it. And so the risk that anyone would run at staying at that little T-truth is based in an ignorance around how to me do methods and practices to evolve the process of telling truth and, in and incorporating truth in a way that's constructive. So I totally hear what you're saying. And I think that a lot of women would feel appalled. They would say, you know, I would not say that to myself that I was a loser or that I was pathetic. And what I would say is that what you it, what you're missing, if you don't tell that truth about who you were in that moment, you cannot know yourself um, with the depth that you desire, and you cannot grow yourself with the honesty and the integrity that you desire because you're not operating from a real center. It's just a performative center. And so one of the things that happens with Jen now, excuse me, Heather, her name is Heather. One of the things that happens with Heather now is that because she was able to face that truth about herself in that time or space um, and went through the Supreme Love Healing Methodology to actually heal it and subsume it and really evolve it and grow it up. I mean, she's done so much clearing and so much cleaning. There is barely anything anybody can say to Heather that will move her in any way, shape or form. Her knowledge of herself is so complete at this point um, and is so strong. There, she's not performing her womanhood anymore at those shallow ends. She's actually embodying her womanhood in great depth. We are nearly out of time. And before we go, I want to ask you about the Supreme Love Project, because this is the compendium and the support uh, to the book that you've written, The Revelations of Asher, Toward Supreme Love in Self. So talk a little bit about the Supreme Love Project. So the Supreme Love Project is my personal liberation project. Um, one of the things I do in the world, my ministry to women, my purpose for living, is to contribute to the end of human suffering through... Um, ministry to girls and women. And, and what I advocate for is a personal liberation project, Lisa. So I say everybody needs a personal liberation project. If we can imagine that by default, we're in some sort of bondage, we need to be liberated. So the yes. Supreme Love Project is my personal liberation project made public. It's where I tell my stories um, about my fragmented cells, um, this, the disowned, uh, disordered, diseased parts of me that I had to come in contact with and learn to accept, agree with, heal. Um, and partner up with, and women can go to the Supreme Love Project and get free coaching. They can sign up to do tuition-based coaching that's more intensive, um, where they can get wraparound support to make their liberation project a reality and stop pretending out here, get really free for real. Beautiful. To learn more about Dr. Janine Staples, please visit janinestaples.com, on Twitter at Janine Staples, and on Facebook, Dr. Janine M. Staples. And the book we've been talking about today is The Revelations of Asher Towards Supreme Love in Self. And we've got a, just a, a few seconds more, Janine, before before we sign off, for the, for the moment anyways, um, what about your own personal liberation? Talk, mm -hmm. talk of in, in, in a wrap about that, a few words. Sure. Well, I was a struggling codependent for years. I drew in narcissists. I had two um, narcissistic relationships um, where I suffered emotional breakdowns. I had all kinds of somatic manifestations, insomnia, panic attacks, um, breakouts, um, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, headaches, migraines, um, all sorts of, um, emotional incapacities, um, it, for, for years. I mean, there's a time of my life, Lisa, it was like 10 years where I call it my terror in 10 years, where I literally produced, um, energetically and generated experience for myself to help me show myself in my exterior life, what was happening in my interior life. And, my liberation project came when I hit a wall, like you said earlier in our interview, and I hit the bottom of a well. And I knew that in order for me to continue living in this world, um, not only as a sane person, um, but as, as an insanely, radically accepted, unconditionally loved um, powerhouse of a woman that I had to stop faking my funk, that I really needed to start... Um, doing authenticity and doing um, self-sufficiency and doing self-actualization on a totally different level. And that's when my liberation project was born, when I started to tell the truth about that. And I made that my desire. 
Thank you, Dr. Janine Staples. Once again, to learn more, please visit JanineStaples.com, on Twitter at Janine Staples, and on Facebook, Dr. Janine M. Staples. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and my amazing guests today, Krista Suh and Dr. Janine Staples, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.